0: Okay, I'm back. I'm back. I just had to write that tweet to Neil Brennan, drunk.
1: Welcome to Two Psychologists for Beers. I'm Yoel Inbar. With me here in quarantine, well, not with me in his own house in quarantine, is my friend and colleague Mickey. And like, how you doing, Mickey? uh bored tired uh frustrated wow okay (laughs) Glad things are going so well listen yesterday i forgot myself and tried to shake somebody's hand and they fucking recoiled so at least i'm assuming you haven't committed any uh covid faux pas the way i have
2: but i feel there's two faux pas there one is you know, yes, trying to shake someone's hand, but two even being next to somebody like how are you like loosely practicing uh, uh, social distancing? Well, it was the neighbor who came by to to tell me
1: something. Right. And uh, so so we weren't like next to each other, next to each other. We were like a few feet apart. Um, So I guess even that is not okay, Right. I don't think we were leaving the six feet that you're supposed to leave.
2: No, definitely not okay. So I'm glad your neighbor recoiled. Uh, I'm just I'm recoiling just, you know, thinking about you doing that. Yeah, you um, might want to replace me as co-host. This is going to reflect
1: badly on you, too, you know.
2: <laughs> you reflect badly on me in many ways. Uh so
1: this just added to the list. That's right. It's not the first time nor the last time. Uh Vicky, would you like to
2: introduce our guest today? You guys are like the Cuomo brothers, for God's sake. <laughs> uh Scott, uh we have a, we have a a special guest with us today. We've got uh Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman, who uh, is visiting us and going to talk to us all about um, uh, humanistic psychology um, and uh, Maslow and and the recreation of of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Um, So Scott is a humanistic psychologist exploring the depths of human potential. Uh, He's taught courses on intelligence, creativity, and well-being at Columbia, uh, NYU, and the University of Pennsylvania, among others. Uh, Scott received his PhD in cognitive psychology from Yale University. And a master a master's degree in experimental psychology from the University of Cambridge. Uh, he writes the column "Beautiful Minds" for Scientific American, and hosts the incredibly popular uh, podcast uh, called "The Psychology Podcast," which has received over 10 million downloads. So, about 10 million more downloads than us, you will. Yeah,
1: um, yeah. Uh, so, I'm uh, I didn't know that. Before you said that, and and now I feel a little ashamed to be in Scott's company, and I kind of feel like I want to just slink off
2: and drink my beer quietly. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Um, Scott has written and edited uh, numerous books, including Ungifted, uh, Intelligence Redefined, uh, Twice Exceptional, Supporting and Educating Bright and Creative Students with Learning Difficulties, Wired to Create— Unraveling the Mysteries of the Creative Mind and a book that I believe was just uh, released uh, called Transcend, the New Science of Self-Actualization and and something we'll talk about quite a bit. Um, uh, Perusing uh, Scott's uh, bio, I I picked up a little nugget here that uh, I thought was interesting. Uh, Scott is a classically trained uh, vocalist. Um, He's classically trained in vocal performance and likes to sing musical theater. And he also plays the cello uh Scott, if I just asked you to sing something a couple of bars for for us right now, would you would you abide us?
0: <clears throat> I'm not warmed up, <clears throat> so no <laughs> this this is the moment this is the day when I send all my doubts and demons on their way, their way That's what
2: happens when you're not warmed up. <laughs> <laughs> that was fantastic. Um, thank you. I'm, I'm, I'm ha- so happy you actually abided us there. Um, and let me just let me say one last time, uh, Scott. Uh, finally, is uh, the director of research at the Two E Center, um, uh, which is part of the Bridges Academy, which is a recognized uh, an educational institute uh, uh, recognized in, in educating uh, students who are considered Two E, so twice exceptional students. So, welcome to the show, Scott. Oh, thank you for having me on. I'm a long
0: time listener of your podcast.
2: Uh well thanks so much and um I, I you know in preparation for today's uh podcast you you'd warned us that uh you uh you don't drink beer. And and then you were worried that you would be disinvited. Of course you're not. Uh we uh I think our last guest drank water, right? Isn't that correct, Yoel?
1: Well, she started with the oolong, but then yes, then she graduated to just the warm water.
2: Right. The unadulterated water. Are you also drinking
0: water, mm-hmm. Scott? Are you? Uh, what are you drinking? No. And, and please let me know when I can start drinking, but I actually poured
2: myself a glass of white wine. Excellent. You, you can start drinking. Absolutely. So, oh, yay. Okay. I'm going to start now. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, and what about you, U-L? You, you What, are you, what are you uh, do you do you? Well,
1: remember how I had that Stella in the fridge, like the kind of emergency Stella? We drank it uh, a couple times, I think. Okay, sure. Yes. Yeah, it's still the same Stella, and I I dug out one of those because, you know, at the best of times, I'm lazy about getting beer, and during a pandemic, I'm damn sure not going to line up at the LCBO in order to get fancy beer. So, yeah, I found a few more Stella in the fridge, and I am drinking one, and it is watery as always.
2: (laughs) Excellent. Uh, is that is that like a self you know, you know, filling, you know, stash of stellux. I feel you've always, you always have just two there. I know it's weird. It like maybe
1: they multiply while I'm not looking, but I have the same intuition, right? Like I didn't have a lot of them, but somehow there's always some left. Right. It's kind of like that, you know, that uh, self-filling soup bowl. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Right. Which
2: we've been hearing so much about. So Mickey, what have you been drinking? Uh, so I actually, I'm, I'm very excited about what I've got. So I've got another... um uh, listener donated beer. This is still from uh, Corinna Michels, who was a visiting postdoc in my lab, and she brought something called Colt. The O has got an umlaut, so maybe I'm not pronouncing that right. You uh, all, well, how would you pronounce that? K O L T O has got an umlaut. Colt.
1: It makes it the, the, the,
2: the longer.
1: Yeah, like cone. Ah, yeah.
2: Ah. Okay. So this is a uh, a Kolsch from uh, Cologne again, and. Uh, this is a, I think it's a combination, of maybe a Kolsch and uh, an Alt, which is the Dusseldorf's local beer. This is the, the, these drinking notes that I got from, uh, from, from Corinna. And she thinks it's probably a result of a lost battle in 1288 between Cologne and Dusseldorf um, that started a still existing rivalry at the cultural and sport related level. Um, so this apparently this beer brings both uh, the Kolsch and Alt uh, you know traditions together, and all I know is it tastes good. So cheers, uh, gentlemen. Cheers, everybody. Cheers. Um, well, you know I wonder if we could start off by um, not so much a question, uh, but you know just a recognition of like this this current moment in, in history uh, where you know it's uh, what is today April fifteenth. Um, 2020, we've been in uh, self isolation in North America for about a month now uh, in many places, and I think it's been difficult and challenging and frustrating for for a lot of us. Um, and I wonder, Scott, if we can just kind of uh, can borrow your you know humanistic psychology mind a little bit, and I wonder if you had any kind of advice for maybe some of our listeners who are struggling with uh, again this the current you know, current conditions of their lives. Yeah, a lot of people are really wondering about.
0: How in the world are they going to? How are they dealing with this uncertainty? And you know, a lot of the research in in humanistic, humanistic psychology and also positive psychology makes it clear that the the deep paradox of contentment is we, you know, we're not content anyway. Even before this, no, none of us were content if we're honest with ourselves. Uh, constantly grasping for things, constantly uh, trying to to search for ways of having more control in our lives and to reduce the uncertainty in, our, uncertainty in our lives. This is actually an interesting exercise that may be useful for us. I mean, obviously, I, we, we wish this didn't happen, but it may be a very useful exercise to learn how to really b- be with that uncertainty and in a an par- paradoxical way that is actually what leads to contentment contentment comes along it emerges it's not something that the more you strive for it, the more it it's out of reach but contentment seems to emerge when we have real acceptance of the situation and we cultivate more gratitude for the things that already exist in our lives
2: so uh in terms of uh like actionable advice for for listeners is this kind of like sitting with you know the the misery if they're they're miserable is it um yeah, any kind of anything that people, you know, our listeners could do.
0: Yeah, practice it like a muscle. Like, like reframe the situation as a as a great opportunity to practice being with uncertainty. I mean, the more you practice it, the more you will become comfortable with it. And obviously, people are at various different stages of this process. Uh, some people are are really physically suffering. Some people have this virus. Some people. Um, are, are very sick and, and that's, that's, that's different. You know, it's hard to like give a um, advice to, uh, you know, without ignoring individual differences and, or physical or situational differences. But, you know, on the whole, if you're healthy, if you are at home, I mean, think, think, well, I'm going to be a monk for the next two months and just think about how much monks grow, you know, from what they do. And, you know, there are people who willfully go, to the Himalayas for a year or or a year, multiple years, and practice the fine art of of being uh, living a monk lifestyle. So you can do it. You can do it for a couple months, and not only can you do it, but you may grow from it. That's the very positive psychology in me, <laughs>
2: Mickey. How has the monk lifestyle been working out for you? The monk lifestyle for myself, you know, it. I mean, I I, I think I resonate to some extent with what you're saying, Scott, because it's. Uh, there are these small little challenges. I mean, I, I you know, I, and I think you all and maybe the three of us, we're all in a very privileged and comfortable situation, more or less. We have our jobs. We've got the security of that, which is a lot of us don't have. Um, and, but uh, there are challenges of, you know, being stuck at home. Like my, my kids are, are fighting with each other a lot. I, I find that, you know, us as parents, we're, we're having more conflict with with the kids. And, it's mm-hmm. yeah, it's, it's been challenging. Um but to some extent, I think what you're saying, Scott, is like you know, see these as challenges and, and try to to grow and, and work on it. And I'm trying, but it, but it, it is it is difficult, uh, especially because you can't really get a break.
0: Yeah, and I want to I want to acknowledge it's really difficult. It's difficult for me too. You know, anything I say today, any advice I give, whatever, please know that I struggle too. Right? It's like it's a, you know, I'm not above any of this. And uh, what I like to do though is I like to do exper- So I like to do a lot of self-experimenting. It's a big Hobby of mine and being like, well, I wonder what would happen if I cut this out for a week. You know, how would I feel differently or think differently? I'm kind of trying to reframe this situation because the first couple weeks I was almost losing my mind. You know, I, I think I snapped once on Twitter and wrote something. I was like, and it got more likes than anything I've ever read and So it's interesting to see how unleashed Scott tends to be more pop. It tends to be popper, but I, I I realized that. You know, I kind of after that breaking point, I then was like, you know what I'm going to reframe frame this It's almost like things just really configured itself for, for me and I was like I'm gonna just treat this as like a self experiment and and see what emerges on the other side Sometimes you have the faith that an experiment will lead to growth longer term even though you it may seem very far away
2: that's interesting um all right so I wonder uh, I, I hopefully that that is uh, of some uh, comfort to some of our listeners. Um, so I wonder if we can like start, uh, you know, in, in, with you like from the beginning. Like I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about you know your academic background, um, how you got uh, to where you currently are. And I wonder like so uh, about a year ago, I read Angela Duckworth's book Grit, and I was delighted to see that you were mentioned in there um, as one of her paragons of grit. Um, so I wonder if you could, yeah, can of tell us a little bit about your background, how you got to, to where you are, and maybe, yeah, keeping kind of Angela on Angela the back of your mind a little bit.
0: Why were you so surprised that I was uh, mentioned as a Paragon of Grit?
2: Oh, well, I don't know you, uh, and I, but I, I think I'd, be, uh-huh. I'd, I'd met you once uh, on your podcast, and I was like, oh, I was delighted. It was a the, delightful surprise. I thought, oh, yeah. I know that guy. Yeah.
0: yeah. I know. I'm kind of joking. <laughs> you, you, you're like, Scott Barry Kaufman? A Paragon of Grit? <laughs> no um so that's not what it was okay um yeah you know it, uh, my my story like where do I even start with this kind of story because when I was really really young even just the first couple of years of my life I had a lot of fluid in my ears and I had a lot of earaches and it was very hard for me to process things in real time and people really thought I was dumb and my teachers thought you know I was a slow learner because it would take an extra, millisecond or two for me to process what they were saying. I I mean, I couldn't even hear them really. I had an ear operation to remove the fluid and um, I was doing quite well. started to do quite well uh, uh, but I had a lot of anxiety as a result of being treated as though I was dumb. It's amazing what that does to a person. And I was asked to repeat third grade, which didn't help restore confidence in myself either. And then I was put in special education, which further didn't help restore confidence. And it's amazing. You can have these downward spirals. You can also have upward spirals. You have a lot of kids put in gifted education and very young, you know, have this mindset, which can actually bring its own set of troubles. But, you know, for, uh, but it also, um, you know, anyway, that's a different story. We can talk about gifted gift education, but I was in special education all the way up to ninth grade, And there was a a, a moment where a a special ed teacher who I'd never seen before, she was a substitute she was just covering for the class that day. And she took me aside afterwards. She said, why are you here? You know, I I see your frustration. I mean, I was a bit of a I've always been a bit of a smart aleck, I guess. And um, I was taking this untimed test and I was like, why should I finish this right now? I have the rest of my life to finish it if it's an untimed test. You know, I and she she, you know found that funny i guess but she also was like you know you why are you here you you seem you seem frustrated uh, you, you know and i and i realized no one's ever asked me that question so it really it really did quickly turn to like yeah why am i here and i i decided to take myself out of special education i had this big meeting and everything with the administrators and everyone and i just signed up for as many things as i possibly could and was just so curious what i was capable of achieving i think the the grit part um there are, there are multiple elements that I suppose one could say that it was, uh, that I was gritty. Uh, definitely. So I wasn't accepted into Carnegie Mellon university for cognitive science. I really wanted to study cognitive science. Um, so I went and I auditioned for their opera program instead, uh, and got a partial scholarship for opera and then, uh, didn't tell the opera program that I had already been rejected from their university. (laughs) Um, but I came to Carnegie Mellon and then I I switched by the end of the first year. I, I went to the psychology department. I was like, hey, could I be a minor in psychology? And you know, foot in the door technique, as you know. And then the following semester, I was like, oh, I loved it so much. Could I? Who knew? Could I be a major in psychology? Um, and and I just I studied so hard in college, and I I just studied with as many people as I could. I was Herb Simon's research assistant. I was. Um, all sorts of really great people at Carnegie Mellon. And I just, like Robert Sternberg, I studied with at Yale over the summer. I said, teach, do whatever you want. (laughs) I'll do it. (laughs) Please, uh, can I get into Yale, you know, like PhD uh, and be your graduate student. I also, I went to Cambridge, took off Carnegie Mellon. I studied with Nicholas McIntosh IQ research and actually sex differences in IQ, which is a very non-controversial topic. Um, But anyway, I, I, I studied all these things and it just was so exciting to me to learn and to realize that I could um, I could. I was capable of learning. You have to understand. I, I didn't take. Never took that for granted because I went so many years in school, in grade school, not knowing that I was capable of it or that I'd love it.
1: Yeah. So I actually I didn't know that you had worked uh, in Herb Simon's lab. Can you say a little about what that was like? Because he's obviously um, just an intellectual hero of mine.
0: Oh, really? Great. He, he's an intellectual of mine as well. I'm his. I'm his last research assistant. Uh, before he passed away, and it was just an amazing, amazing opportunity. I signed up for his graduate course at Carnegie Mellon. I think it was called Thinking and Problem Solving or something like that. And I was one of the very few undergrads that he allowed to take the class. And I, I, mean, I like fell in love with him, if I can say that. You know, like you know, I just was like enamored. I should say I was enamored with him. You know, and the idea, the expertise acquisition approach um, to. Ability, high ability, resonated d- deeply with the core of my being because y- y- you talk about personal melting with the with the, sci- the science. I felt as I personally resonated with that approach because I studied so hard to get where I was, and I felt like it could be explained by you know the chunking approach and about my hard work and all that. So that was so good, and um, yeah, and he, he, I, I, I did research with him and his, his graduate student at the time and we even presented a paper um uh, uh, semantic priming or something I, to this day i don't understand the paper that i was a co-author on <laughs> i don't <even> understand <laughs> but he was so he was amazing i mean I, I, I should talk about him a bit um he was very very gentle very um uh, just generous uh, i think he played violin i remember we talking once in his office and he said he misses playing the violin. He, he likes to play from time to time. He was a very simple man in a lot of ways. He he said he um he he made the same peanut butter jelly sandwich every day. I think he walked the same route to work every day. He you know I guess it was in their story about Einstein as well that he tried to minimize all the those kinds of decisions as well.
1: Yeah, that's right. And there's another. Uh, I wish I could remember who it was, but it was a, about a researcher that I really respect who determined the optimal lunch was like a tuna fish sandwich. So you just ate that every day for lunch. I think it's a, some sort of like fixation on the work that just crowds out anything else and a willingness to just like say, okay, well, that, that's not important. You know, I'll just eat peanut butter and jelly or well, whatever. Well,
0: Herb Simon had that. And something that always perplexed me about Herb Simon though, and, and thank you, you're, you're one of the first people who ever asked me an interview to tell you about Herb Simon. So I'm excited for this opportunity. Um, he was not really into the practical aspects of psychology even though his work had a lot of practical applications he would tell me to to just focus on the science and just do as good science as possible and not just not because i i did have the the practical impulse and he was not like that excited about that aspect of me <laughs> you know like he's like he's like just do the hardcore work and let other people do that stuff And that always perplexed me about him because he studied such practical stuff.
1: Yeah, yeah, he did. But I'm not surprised that you say that. His approach is so, to me, kind of very theoretically driven, basic science, how does cognition work? And that obviously has a ton of practical implications. But just from looking at his work, I I obviously I never met him or, or interacted with him. But I just get that impression that that was really his orientation was like, you know, I'm interested in like the fundamental questions and the application doesn't really what didn't really seem to be on his radar to me.
0: That's exactly right. Yeah, exactly. Right. right. So
1: anyway, sorry, that was a little bit of a, a tangent. We were talking about you. Um, And uh, one thing I'm curious about is uh, how you got into the, the thing that you're now identified with as a researcher, which is, I would say, really um, positive psychology. Was was that always something that you knew you wanted to do? Was it something uh, that developed over time? How did that work? it
0: is that what I, I was so, I was on the edge of my seat to hear how you were finished that sentence, what I'm identified <laughs> well, with. Well,
1: you know, you can feel free yeah. to contest that identification if you feel that's unfair or inaccurate. I think it's fair right now,
0: maybe even humanistic psychology now, but I would say that it it's interesting that, that pathway, because that wasn't my aspiration. And I think that, I'll really get into the detail about what I mean by that and because I, I know you this is an exciting opportunity for me to talk to like insider baseball in a lot of way like you know what I'm talking about. So when I started off in the field my goal was I'm going to redefine intelligence. I thought I was an intelligence researcher I mean well well I, to be fair, I was an intelligence. I mean I still am an intelligence researcher. I, mean, I publish in journal intelligence. That counts as an intelligence researcher. But when I started off, that's what I that's all I thought I was. I didn't know anything. I'd never heard of positive psychology that when I started off in the field, didn't even know about creativity research. I was on a mission. I was on a mission to understand intelligence. I just wanted to understand it. In all of its manifestations, I uh, just uh, I studied with Nicholas McIntosh, who, who wrote one of the best textbooks on human intelligence, who is considered a, a traditional British psychometrician. I mean, a wording theorist, a very traditional IQ research. I wanted to learn all about G, the G factor, you know, of of human intelligence. And so that's what I thought I was. I wrote this book called Ungifted. That was my first book uh, for a general audience called Ungifted: Intelligence Redefined. And I was like in my head, I was like, "Wow, the intelligence field is really going to embrace this, and uh, and you know they'll they'll like my redefinition, and we'll move the field forward, and we'll change." Well, crickets in the in the in, in, among intelligence researchers. Uh, and educators liked it. Educators liked it. You know, but. I didn't move much of the dial uh, uh, to my chagrin in the intelligence field. They were so wedded to IQ. They're like, no, it's IQ. They couldn't. They couldn't think outside of IQ. And I, I wanted them to so desperately to just broaden their notion of what it could mean to be an intelligent human being, even in a scientific way, not in some sort of spiritual you know like non-testable way i i I showed data (laughs) in ungifted that look these other stuff are part of intelligence my whole cogni, my whole dissertation in in college uh, in it it, sorry in graduate school was a new theory of intelligence that takes into account the unconscious uh I, i published a paper cognition showing that individual differences in implicit cognition exist and they are correlated zero with iq so i thought they would be so excited about all this and be like wow there's more to intelligence than iq and they were not excited about it and so that was that hurt me personally (laughs) for a a bit of time um and i was almost depressed i was like because i thought my whole mission i thought that's what i was doing was redefining intelligence and then i realized that i i like i discovered the creativity field i discovered the creativity researchers and i was like well this this is exciting maybe this is what i'm really talking about is more um expression of your intelligence creativity um and then i discovered positive psychology i discovered positive psychology not by i mean it's an interesting story martin seligman who's the founder of positive psychology essentially he was like come to, i want to have a talk with you come to Penn." and i had and even then i didn't even know what positive psychology was and people said that's why i got the job because most people when they meet martin seligman they they um they they, they kiss his you know you know what? Uh, yeah, uh, I don't know if we want to say that word <laughs> on your show. And and I and I I came I came to that interview and um, um his grad student Marie Forgard, was a friend of mine who set a, kind of set up the meeting. I didn't know what he wanted to talk to me about and and and. I he said tell me about yourself and I was like well I'm an intelligence researcher I I told my personal story and apparently I was I was cursing a lot actually in, in when I was meeting with Seligman because I got I get all emotional when I talk about this topic and he just essentially on the spot he's like do you want to run the imagination institute um, we just got a big grant from the Templeton Foundation to do that and I was like on the ride back and I was like my whole life I feel like just changed <laughs> in that moment and then welcome to positive psychology so for five years um, my, my office was right next door to Angela Duckworth and she, she asked if I wanted to when she wrote the book Grit she said do you want to teach my course at Penn so then I was like okay great so then I read the literature and I was like oh wait this is what I'm actually doing you know like beating I'm being a dead horse with intelligence researchers no offense to intelligence researchers they're neither dead or horses but
2: you know me <laughs> metaphorically um that's that's bad do you know do you know what i'm saying yeah totally i, I want to uh there's so much there that i, I want to follow up on but i wonder if briefly like what it, was the response of the kind of uh, intelligence research community was it like um antagonistic or was it literally no response no. at all I'll tell you what it was because this is the the, – there's a specific example
0: I can point to. Earl Hunt, the legendary intelligence researcher in cognitive psychology, Earl Hunt, buzz, buzz Hunt, wrote a review of my book in the journal Intelligence. This to me was supposed to be the pinnacle of my career. And the book, it was almost like it couldn't have been worse in the sense that it wasn't bad and it wasn't good. It was literally – and I could send you the review. It was literally like – it's a it's a pretty well documented book just irrelevant to intelligence researchers that's that's what it was that was the review and it was like a dagger to my heart and um i, I had such respect for earl hunt you know what i mean i i i mean I, I do he's passed away that's why i did past tense but i still have immense respect for him and his work and i have immense respect for a lot of intelligence researchers i just wished so desperately that they would Consider some of these other characteristics I put forward as part of the construct of intelligence. That's all I wanted. I never wanted to um, deny or sweep under the rug the importance of the g factor or the positive correlation matrix of cognitive tests. It exists, and I never denied it. I'm not one of these anti-IQ. You know, Stephen J. Gold. You'll never see me write that kind of book. My Ungifted was not like Stephen J. Gold. It was my attempt to acknowledge that their research exists, but also say, look at all these other people that are showing the same intelligent outcomes with lower IQ scores bringing into the mix other capacities and other cognitive abilities. So you're getting me all emotional
2: about this. <laughs> yeah, no, it's great. I, I can I can see that even though I guess what almost a decade has passed, the, 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 these emotions are still uh, raw to some extent. Um, it's
0: raw because when you're a graduate student, all you want to be as a graduate student, you want to be accepted by a, by a particular nerdy, specific community. I think most graduate students can resonate with this who are listening to this. So if you study the BA-10 and that's your whole life is the BA-10, you desperately, your dream someday is to be asked to, invited to give a talk at the BA-10 conference. That's all you care about in your life, you know? So I was that grad student was like, oh, I really hope that intelligence researchers like my new theory of intelligence,
2: you know? Yeah, I hear that. Um, Okay, so uh, another thing that you said in the previous answer was uh, how you uh, kind of became or became identified with positive psychology but i noticed in your website you don't call yourself a positive psychologist you call yourself specifically a humanistic psychologist so maybe yeah. we could start by uh like you know what is humanistic psychology uh, and then related yeah. is there any difference in humanistic psychology and, and positive psychology are, or are they just a new a new rebranding? Right.
0: Great, and this relates to everything we we're just talking about because my whole journey was to discover that that was really my identity. You know, it's like the intelligence phase was like the teenager phase where I snuck out the window and and hooked up with a bad boy, um, and realized that wasn't really me. And then you know, uh, <laughs> the weirdest metaphor ever in the history of your podcast, probably. But <laughs> but I hope that makes sense to us to at a certain level. I we go through our lives trying to find what suits us. What 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 identity are we? You know what what really resonates with us. And the reason why I think I always was a humanistic psychologist and didn't know it, you know, um, and 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 I'm glad I discovered it is because humanistic psychologists are interested in the whole person. They're interested in how we can deal with the paradoxes of human existence and find some sense of integration of all that we are. And I went through phases before I, I before I settled on the identity of humanistic psychology, and I may not settle the rest of my life. <laughs> Who knows how life grows and I develop. But I went through an evolutionary psychology phase, for instance. I went through an intelligence phase. Then I went through an evolutionary psychology phase and felt what was missing I thought a lot of the research was great, but I felt it was so compartmentalized. You have this module, you have that. Mo- but where's the higher level integration of all of that, you know? Um, intelligence research. I was like, well, how could, why would we separate one aspect of our being, one characteristic, IQ, um, which we can, we can compare between people, but within a person, you can't strip that away from the context of the rest of who you are. That doesn't even make sense from a within-person perspective. So what I like about the humanistic psychology perspective is it really focuses on the person. It doesn't focus um, so much on... uh on, in, I mean, I'm interested in personality and individual differences, but it's interesting, like, like I'm really into the whole trait personality approach now as well, which is an emerging uh, aspect of personality psychology. Uh, of sorry, of personality psychology, like William Fleeson's work, for instance. I think is very. I tried to show um,
1: that it's compatible with humanistic psychology thinking about human nature, and we that's the direction we need to, to move more in. Scott, I, I'm glad we're going in this direction. I, I was hoping that maybe for those of our listeners who aren't really familiar with what humanistic psychology is. Maybe you could just give a brief overview of what is that? Where did it come from? Well, it depends how far back you want to go. One of the first humanistic psychologists,
0: I think, was Karen Horney, who is one of the most underrated psychologists in the history of psychology. Everyone's heard of Freud, but so many of his ideas were were absolute bunk. You know, Karen Horney came along and was like, you know what, Freud, you're a chauvinistic pig <laughs> and and I'm going to present a feminist psychoanalysis that shows also a positive aspects of human nature shows that, that there are these naughty sides of herself, so to speak, but that's not there. It, that's not all there is to us. I actually think she was one of the first humanistic psychologists. I, I think I could make a case for that in the thirties. And I also think uh, Alfred Adler was one of the first humanistic psychologists. He came around as well and he broke off from Freud and he argued we i think that we have social interest i think he called it gesupumaful or something it was a german word uh he had a word for it it means social interest um and then uh and then we of course we have i, I think carl carl jung would be part of that uh so the that kind of movement and then and then in the 50s and 60s you did have psychotherapist carl rogers uh, abraham maslow um Raul May, who's also very underrated. Um, You had a certain cadet of people, uh, Eric Fromm, uh, who wrote The Art of Loving. Uh, You you have these individuals coming together and creating, starting a humanistic movement, which unfortunately only lasted a decade or two, and which I, I think it's time to bring back.
1: Yeah, so maybe this is a good time to ask you about this. As somebody who doesn't know a lot, um, about this area, so like I'm familiar with some of these names and maybe the like most famous works. Um, I've gotten the impression that mainstream empirical psychologists think of this as some somewhat kind of like woolly hippy dippy. You know, Leon Festinger famously said about Maslow that guy's ideas aren't even wrong right? So like, and it, what he meant by that, is, it's just not empirical. It's not testable. Yeah. I don't know what to do with it. Right. And it, so like, do you, do you feel that? And yeah, what is your, what's your take on that? I agree.
0: And, and, and that's why I set up this mission to scientifically test those ideas. Um, the book Transcend that came out last week is the culmination of uh, many studies. Um, I, Created a self-actualization scale, for instance, where I tried empirically psych- test which of his characteristics of self-actualization are actually psychometrically valid. For instance, I don't I don't think what you do with ideas that seem fluffy but promising is to dismiss them as fluffy and irrelevant. I think the what you do as a scientist is you say, "Huh, I wonder if there's anything there. Let's test it," and that's the spirit I took with this. I think there were so many brilliant ideas in humanistic psychology about the human condition that just because they weren't tested in the fifties and sixties, that's not reason enough to dismiss it as um, as uh, well. That's is relevant to psychology today. I think that we need a humanistic psychology today because we have so many uh, we have so many fractionated areas. Like the field of psychology is so fractionated, and. It's it's we could unite it if we started talking more about what the integrated human being looks like.
1: Interesting. All right. So we've already gotten into uh, the topic of your book a little bit. I'm going to propose that we take a quick break. Um, I could grab another beer um, and then oh, I would uh, maybe I'll grab you can another refill your me. wine Evenly. and then there's going to be more singing and we will ask you more about your book. Hello, listeners, all here. We're being sponsored this week again by The Great Courses Plus. The Great Courses Plus is an educational streaming service, and especially now where we're spending so much time indoors, it's an incredible resource that provides us the space to continue exploring the world and uh, keep our brains active and engaged. Now, they have courses for basically anything you might be interested in, from hobbies like playing guitar or practicing yoga to classics like history, science, and literature. One course we can personally recommend is the course Great Ideas of Philosophy, which is a thorough introduction to the Western philosophical tradition from Plato to Voltaire to Freud and beyond. Now with the Great Courses Plus, you can watch or listen to a course anytime through their app. You can even stream the videos to your TV to watch as a group, perhaps to keep the kids learning while they're out of school now is the perfect time to start with the Great Courses Plus because they are giving our listeners a limited time offer of a free month trial of unlimited access to the entire library. Now, in order to get that free offer, you need to use our special URL. That URL is thegreatcoursesplus.com/beers, and uh, using that URL. You can uh, find out all the details and get your free month of unlimited access to the entire The Great Courses Plus library. Again, that URL is com slash beers. Thanks so much to The Great Courses Plus for sponsoring our show. Welcome back. This is the part of the show where I tell you how to contact us. So we're on Twitter at four beers pod. You can DM us. You can at mention us. We both check that account. If you'd like to email us instead, our email address is four beers pod at gmail.com. Uh, that goes to both of us as well. Finally, our website is four fireside. Dot FM where you can listen to any of our episodes and you can also drop us a line there using the contact form if you like. Um, this is uh, also a good time to remind you guys that if you're enjoying the show, it really helps us. If you rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or the podcast hosting platform of your choice, it just helps other people discover the show if you do that. Mickey, do you have anything else that you would like to add?
2: Uh, no, just keep on uh, you know, writing to us. Um... We, we received, you know, not tons, but like enough delightful emails, um, you know, with some episodes more than others. Uh, for example, just the other day, received like a really long and interesting email uh, about, from a philosopher about, um, again, our generalizability crisis episode, which seems to have generated a lot of interest. So, yeah, if you have any thoughts about anything we say on the show, please, uh, please share them with us. We, we, we are delighted to receive them. Exactly. Okay. So let's really quickly talk about what we're drinking. Um,
1: I found the second to last Stella in my fridge. So I'm just going to put a marker in to say there is one left in there. And if like tomorrow or the day after there's more than one, then some weird shit is going on. I bet you they're going to be like three when I show up next. (laughs) They're fucking multiplying. I know it. I know. But there's only one. So it doesn't have a partner. Maybe they reproduce by budding. Who knows? We'll see. Mickey, what about you?
2: So I'm still drinking the 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 Kult, uh, Maybe I pronounced that correctly. That was great. Um, again, oh excellent, thank you. Um, again, donated by Corinna Michels in commemoration of the battle uh, over 800 years ago between uh, Cologne and Dusseldorf. So thank you, Corinna and Scott. Uh, I'm drinking my uh, white wine. Excellent. And you you told us off air that you're uh, you're starting to feel the uh, the wine. Is that is that correct?
0: it's really starting to hit me. I, I don't drink that often, but I will say, I'd say that not to paint myself out to be a saint in any sort of way, but I will say with this coronavirus, uh uh, quarantine. I've been I've been drinking a, a little bit more frequently, but it just it it just goes right to me, and it, it's gone to me. Huh. <laughs> it's gone to me. So I don't know what you're going to get out of me uh, the rest of this episode.
2: All right, let's get back to uh, to talking about self actualization and Abraham Maslow. And, uh, you know, his hierarchy the of higher, needs. The higher needs, the higher forms of our needs. Yes, exactly. So um, I, I think the, the conceit of your book is uh, modernizing, um, you know, a, a Maslow's hierarchy of needs. So I wonder if we, before we get there, if you could just give a quick, you know, version of what the standard version is, what, you know, Maslow's, you know, uh, hierarchy of needs are, and then why you think the, you know, we needed a, a, an update. Maslow's
0: hierarchy of needs, uh, many people might be familiar with in terms of a pyramid that ranges from at the bottom of the base of the pyramid. You have the physical needs, uh, food, shelter, water, and then you have uh, safety needs, some sort of level of predictability and coherence in your environment. Then above that, you have the um, uh, connection and, and love, belonging. He called it love and belonging needs. Then above that, you have esteem needs. Uh, which can be esteem from others as well as self-esteem. And then you jump up to self-actualization. That's how it's typically presented. But there are so many misconceptions. First of all, Maslow never actually drew a pyramid. So that's one misconception. I looked I mean I tell you I I think I read as many writings of Maslow as one human being could do. <laughs> and, and never where like where's the triangle? Where's the pyramid? There's no pyramid. Uh that's how others depicted it. If you actually look at his writings, he made it very I think he was a developmental psychologist at heart. He really was. He made it very clear that we could we're, we're, we're satiated to a certain percentage of each of the needs at any given moment of time and we can target multiple needs simultaneously. I mean, I could go right down the line with both of you and and I guarantee you won't be at 100% on any of them, you know? Your connection needs might be, you know, like 40% right now. Your esteem needs might be so-and-so. Your, you know, health and uh, safety needs might be another percentage. So Life is not like a video game and I think Maslow made that very clear. It's not like you reach some level like the need for connection is satisfied and then uh some voice from above is like congrats you've unlocked you know steam and then you go do, da, de, 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 you know up that's my mario brothers music uh, up to and then you just don't have to worry about connection anymore it, it maslow is very clear that um we can be deprived of any of these needs at any moment of time and when we're severely deprived of them it's it's a worldview. So each of these needs, the deprivation of each of these needs is associated with a worldview, a particular worldview. So when we're very severely hungry, everyone looks like a hot dog to us. You know, we walk around, you know, looking for, where's the food? Where's the food? Um, Or if you're vegetarian, where's the broccoli? Where's the broccoli? You know, and then you go up to level of need and let's say you're severely deprived of connection, which a lot of people are right now. You know, in this environment, I, I, I'll say I, I felt uh, the pangs of loneliness the other day. I, I admit it. There's the alcohol talking, right? I, I'm human. There, I admitted it. And I, I took a run and I anyone that I saw, I was just like, hey, how you doing? Hope you have a good day. I just had the craving to connect with another human being. And so we can feel this. And I think that we can—that's that that's what humanistic psychology is about, is about rallying around— Common human needs that even if we're not deprived of it at that moment we can still have empathy for someone who is deprived of it because we know that we could be deprived of it at any at any moment in time. Um, did you want to know my revision though?
2: Yeah, yeah, I, I definitely want to hear. Uh, so that a uh, good summary. That's that's fantastic. And then, yeah, wh- why do you think it was uh, needed to be revised, and how did you revise it? So
0: I I didn't feel like the pyramid was really in the spirit of Maslow. I think. I felt as though what he really emphasized was the dialectical tension between security and growth, or what he could actually call defense versus growth. And that's really what he focused on. So um, I I collaborated with with a designer who came up with a brilliant idea. His name's Andy Ogden. I want to give him credit. He deserves credit. He said, you know what? A sailboat captures that. Much better because when you have a sailboat, you have the boat itself. If if it needs to be safe and secure, you can't have water leaking in, you know, it has to be stable or else you won't go anywhere. But if your boat is, sec- is secure, just secure, that's all you have. You know, you're not, go- you're not going anywhere. You need to open up the sail. Um, so we can't open up our sail and be our most vulnerable, self-actualized self until we're secure. But when we're secure and our sails open, we can really move in the direction of the unknown of the sea, in the direction we want. But there's still an unknown of the sea. And we're all, and also we're all in the same sea. You know, we all are in our boats going in our own direction, uh, but we're all in the unknown of the sea. And right now, I think that these ideas have more relevance to than ever because of the pandemic, we really are seeing how much we're all in the same sea. And maybe
1: in a lot of ways, we're all moving in the same direction right now. So you've written this book, obviously, for a a popular audience, right? Um, and so, no, I wrote it for intelligence reasons.
0: <laughs> I'm just joking. <laughs> yeah, <laughs>
1: because <laughs> they're uh, so receptive to your ideas. Um, so I, I guess, like, part of that is you're hoping that people will will get something out of it, right? So obviously, part of it is just the intellectual interest and the ideas and the life of Maslow and so forth. But I think also part of the promise there is we're going to give you something you can use, right? This is going to improve your life and. So I'm curious, like, how you expect people to to use this? Like, what do you see this? How do you see this making a difference in the way that, you know, people who aren't academic researchers um, choose to live their lives?
0: Yeah. Well, I really do hope it changes people's lives or, or, or influ- influence how they live their life. Because a big part of the book is our, our capacity to have some sort of uh, management of our uncertainties in life so that we can grow. This tension between safety and growth ultimately need to leave the safety aspect and acknowledge that we only grow when we get out outside of our comfort zone. We only grow when we can transcend that need for safety. And I think that this book offers a lot of insights on how to do that. I, I have a whole appendix of exercises, practical exercises one can do. But a lot of the book is also about a lot of personality tests that use psychometrically uh, validated personality tests. Um, so much of so much of it is is of the book is really helping people really get to know who they are, and not just the positive sides themselves. I have I have I have dark triad tests, for instance. I have narcissism tests. It's to acknowledge we all have all of this within us, and to accept it. And to have a full acceptance of our whole self, so that we can grow
2: um so you know in reading uh parts of your book, I noticed a couple of um interesting uh i would say sharp kind of words about about certain let's say common practices uh uh so for example, I noticed that you um you kind of picked on mindfulness a little bit, uh, in, in a couple, couple of spots. And I don't think you meant it as like the whole enterprise is, uh, is not worth anything, but more the way it's practiced uh, in the West kind of maybe sh- in a shallow manner. Um, so if you, I mean, it, do you have a beef with, with, you know, the way mindfulness is practiced or is it, is it, am I just picking up on the wrong thing and projecting my own, uh, my own disdain? Uh, do do I have a beef with mindfulness yeah, and how it's Yeah, in terms of the way it's practiced. Or not really. Do, I
0: mean, do you get that do you get that sense from me?
2: Well a little bit. See, like I said, in, in the book, uh there were a couple of sharp words for, you know, people doing downward dog in the morning, people meditating. Oh, I see. oh um, I see, I see.
0: Okay. I didn't want to I didn't want to hate on yoga people or meditators, uh because I'm a meditator for for for, for uh, Christ's sake. But um I, I want to be very clear that what I was criticizing was those who think that a single meditation session or that yoga will compensate for their deep insecurities will somehow be a a magic panacea. Uh, Some people call this spiritual bypassing uh, as a term I learned after I wrote the book, but that's what I was talking about there was spiritual bypassing, people trying to transcend on a faulty foundation. Uh, Maslow called it pseudo-growth and I think a lot of people do have a lot of pseudo growth. They think they're enlightened now because they are doing these spiritual practices without actually trying to address their deep traumas, um, integrate their naughty bits into themselves uh, you know they ignore they think that if they just ignore it it'll go away you know uh, they they think they're just enlightened now and, and and what i really try to focus on is the integration of all of this so i certainly was not <laughs> hating on yoga or meditation i i do actually try to cultivate a, a mindfulness practice I'm, I'm going through the sam harris waking up app right now by the way um uh, for the record and uh, i find it very very helpful
1: yeah so while we're on this topic um one thing that struck me a bit reading uh, the the first part of your book is it, it seems like there is a bit of overlap between humanistic psychology and Buddhist thinking. Um, and you even used the word grasping earlier, um, which jumped out at me because I know that that's a, a term from Buddhist thought, right, the, and how they talk about desire um, and wanting to, uh, things to be a certain way or um, wanting uh, – Well, physical possessions, um, physical comfort, but also, well, esteem from other people, um, acclaim, uh, love, all of that stuff, I I think in in Buddhist thought would be considered to be something that, you know, you should you should be okay with. Sometimes you have it. Sometimes you don't. Right. And so I I wonder if you can say a little more about the, the overlaps and maybe the differences between those two ways of thinking.
0: So I think there's a, a real strong connection between Buddhist philosophy and humanistic psychology. I think when you look at the history of humanists, we look at the humanistic psychologists in the 40s and 50s and 60s, they were deeply, deeply influenced by the existential psychologists. Um, well, I should say the existential philosophers. Um, they were very interested in existential philosophy, but they were also were very interested in Buddhist philosophy. Abraham Maslow, in particular, towards the end of his life, when he was formulating his theory of transcendence, uh, was very interested in Eastern philosophical notions of self-transcendence. Uh, he had co-opted a term that his East Indian colleagues U.A. Anzrani, referred to as the plateau experience. So many people are familiar with Maslow's notion of the peak experience, but Maslow, towards the end of his life, thought transcendence was really all about, all about the plateau experience, and that was about seeing the miraculous in the everyday life and in the everyday world. Uh, you, you know, you really can you can trace a lot of his ideas in his book, The Higher Reaches of Human Nature, his last one of his last books he wrote. Um, you can trace a lot of it uh, it to Buddhist thought influencing his thinking for sure. Absolutely. It's it's
2: undoubt, undoubt, un, non-doubt. Uh, maybe it's a follow up, quick follow up on that. Uh so we've been talking the, the the title of your book is transcendence. We've been talking about, you know, this this thing that people might want to strive for, this transcendence. So what do you mean by that? What is transcendence? Transcend what? What a great question because Maslow
0: actually wrote an article 23 I think definitions of transcendence. He was not I mean he actually was a very nuanced thinker. He he wasn't like a, you know, the five hacks to you know, he wasn't that kind of guy. And when he actually looked at his writings, he's like, "Look, there's many ways we can talk about transcendence. We can talk about transcending of the ego. We can talk about dichotomy transcendence, which means transcending a lot of false dichotomies we have in our society, like selfishness and unselfishness. You know, um, good versus evil, male versus female. You know, we can transcend false dichotomies. Um, he, we can, we can. There's so many different." ways that we could transcend things how does sbk or my friend as my friends call me the notorious sbk <laughs> how does he define it and as i do in my book i define healthy transcendence as the um what, what's my definition the harmony here we go the harmonious integration of the whole self in the service of the good society so the way i define healthy transcendence is being able to integrate all these different aspects of yourself so they're not fighting with, e- with each other. So you don't have this side here that's guilty of this side, that's, that's in this side that wants to do good but doesn't like this side, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. You really have a harmonious integration of your whole self, and you put it out into the world in a way that makes it a positive impact on the world. I, that's how I view transcendence. I view transcendence as not as... Um, being above others, but being having closer to unity with the rest of humankind, so that the the boundaries between self and world disappears. What is good for you
1: is good for the world. That's how I view transcend- healthy transcendence. So, I uh, I've been thinking about something that you mentioned earlier, which is in in passing, uh, you talked a bit about narcissism. This is an aspect yeah. that's a, in in many of us, um, and I know that you've done some work on narcissism, and this this is always kind of a topic that I have found just to be kind of personally interesting. I have no professional really engagement with it at all, but I just I just find this to be kind of a fascinating set of personality traits. So, can you say a little more about the research that you've done there? So, I've I have studied narcissism. It's a topic that interests me very much, uh,
0: and what. I'm particularly interested in is the fact that there are different facets of narcissism that people might not realize. So I'm really interested in vulnerable narcissism. I think it's been really understudied in the field of psychology. Um, I've been publishing some papers with my colleagues on vulnerable narcissism and showing that it has different correlates. It has more of an implication for maladaptive behaviors in life. So grandiose narcissism is the it's trump a lot of beating around the bush <laughs> okay yeah I, I, okay it's the it's the the braggy doso you know uh, 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 chest thumping narcissist uh, i'm great the person who uses the word great every three words that's the grandiose narcissist or the someone who scores very high on grandiose narcissism but the vulnerable narcissist or those the person it's a continuum so i shouldn't say i should say the person who scores high in vulnerable narcissism is the person who thinks that they're entitled to special privileges because of their fragility? Um, that they don't think that they're great. They actually have self-esteem issues, deep self-esteem issues, where they don't view that they view themselves as fundamentally almost worthless. But at the same time, it's a very paradoxical trait because they view themselves as worthless, but they also, at the same time, demand respect and um, and special privileges, and their entitlement is very high. It's very interesting. And, and from a developmental perspective, they, both forms of narcissism um, are developed in separate paths. So the grandiose narcissist, the person who scores high in grandiose narcissism, tends to uh, have grown up in a family where they were told they were great constantly. Maybe they had a father who constantly said, You're great, you're great. But the person who scores high in vulnerable narcissism, the vulnerable narcissism as an, an adult, tended to grow up in an environment where maybe there was abuse, maybe there was emotional abuse, maybe there was physical abuse, maybe, um, you know, there tended to be a lot of trauma. Um, And there's a very interesting link in the literature that no one talks about, because it's a bit controversial, but I find it very, very fascinating between trauma in childhood and high scores on entitlement questionnaires in adulthood. Isn't that very interesting?
1: Interesting. I mean, you know, when people talk about these, like, childhood experiences, adult uh, behavior studies, I always go first to genetics. That's just kind of where my mind goes. So I'm like, yeah, you know, maybe entitled jerks are jerks to their kids, and then those kids end up being entitled jerks. Well, I have a footnote about that. You're right. There is
0: a genetic contribution to both vulnerable narcissism and grandiose narcissism. And, and, and so, for instance, there is a genetic contribution – that's obvious with vulnerable narcissism. So not everyone who's treated... um, So if if you have the genetics to predispose you to vulnerable narcissism and you have a vulnerable narcissistic parent, that interaction is fascinating because you're constantly resenting what your parents are saying to a much larger amplified degree than someone else may respond to the same environmental stimulus. So for sure, genetics there is going to play a role in predicting the amplification of that environmental variable. Nevertheless, I, I put in the footnote, even when you control for genetics, you still see environmental variables matter. So, so it matters that you have the parent who's constantly egging you on, so to speak. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, Mickey, I'm keeping an eye on the time here, but I think you maybe you want to get one more question in. Before
2: we start to wrap up, yeah, maybe I like get one more question, and then yeah, we'll uh, maybe we'll wrap it up. Um, so, p- completely by coincidence, uh, as I was, you know, I happened to stumble upon a paper uh, by Doug Kenrick and, and uh, colleagues at Arizona, I believe Arizona State, uh, from 2010, where they too tried to um, reconstrue or reconfigure. Uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, um, and but they 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 you know went at it from an evolutionary perspective, um, yeah. and you know the top uh, of their hierarchy is very different than let's say the top of uh, top of Maslow's or of yours. The, the, their top is parenting, mate retention, yes. a lot of sex <laughs> in there. Um, yeah,
0: and I'm not a, as you can probably imagine. I'm not a great fan of their model, and I. I think that humans aspire, the human whole organism aspires to more than parenting being the pyramid of human motivation. I think what's important, and I've been working on a scientific paper about this with my colleague Colin DeYoung because I can make very— I'm not making ad adho- I want to be very clear. I have deep respect for Douglas and his uh, colleagues' research. This is uh, not an ad hominem at all. I- I'm-, I'm making a scientific argument. I think we can differentiate between the evolutionary level of analysis and the whole organism level analysis. And we actually should separate the two levels more than we do, more than evolutionary psychologists do. And what I mean by the whole personal level, I mean the cybernetic approach. So my approach is a cybernetic approach. So the cybernetic approach looks at the whole system. You can look at it in um, thermodynamic systems. It just doesn't have to be just humans, but the same principles apply. And when you look at um, the, the the cybernetic approach, you realize that we have goals. Humans have goals that are pre-programmed into us, so to speak, through the course of human evolution. But we also, the thing that's so unique about the human species, which which Kenrick and colleagues don't... I think uh, point to in that paper is that humans are so flexible in the goals that they consciously can um, uh, can create, and our amazing capacity to create and generate goals that you won't see in any other species means that there is a need for a humanistic psychology. There is something that it means to be human. And we should study the uniquely human aspects just as much as we study the evolutionary aspects, which I would never deny. And I think they've done some good research, but it's not a complete picture if we just look at the evolutionary perspective. Okay, was that coherent? As yeah, as I was, totally, uh, under under, uh, under the influence of. Yeah,
2: no, I'm looking at the, at their pyramid right now, and and I I agree. It's like this is as you would imagine from evolutionary psychologists. They're thinking, looking at the commonalities across various species uh maybe parenting would be an exception although i want to argue that you know uh, other animals that's you know they care a lot about parenting as well or that's part of their you know their makeup yeah but you're right i i I like your answer a lot i mean what's unique about humans and and do we have needs that are different and can they be met in some other way so yeah i I like your answer a lot
0: can can, can i even elaborate even more because uh i'm I'm excited for the opportunity to nerd out about this because i'm I'm working on the paper so this is a a teaser (laughs) of it Colin DeYoung and I believe that what is really missing from their paper is the need for exploration. We believe that the need for exploration evolved as its own separate need that cannot be reduced to any of those needs on his list. You can't reduce the need for exploration to mating. You can't reduce it to self-esteem, to parenting. Once you get the combination of—and other animals have the need for exploration. But the point here is that when you combine the need for exploration with the human— uh, consciousness with our ability for self-reflection our ability to create new goals you do get things that cannot be reduced to those lower needs on that kendrick list
2: yeah that's great i i, I love that we ended on uh on like exploration uh which i, I hadn't really thought about it uh, before in terms of this kind of a need that contributes to feelings, uh, to motives that lead to transcendence or self-actualization. But I, self-actualization. I see, yeah, yeah. I could see a, a nice argument being made there.
1: Uh, Scott, before we let you go, uh, we'd like to ask our guests if there's anything that they want to promote. So anything that you'd like our listeners to know about?
0: Um, I want to say, first of all, thanks for nothing, for getting me uh, slobbered. You're very welcome. <laughs> um, uh, second of all... um. You know, I, I hate promotion, and my book is out, and my publisher, like, they're like, promote, promote, promote. And I look forward to, like, this month being over where I can maybe go, like, a moratorium on using the word Abraham <laughs> – the name Abraham Hazel for maybe a month. Can I get, like, a month without saying his name? But right now, because I'm still in the thick of it and I do believe in my book, I, I want to say even under the influence of alcohol, I still love my book, but I I do want to transcend my book someday, um, is that um, I have a book out. Okay, Woo! that was a really long-winded, drunk way of saying I have a book out called Transcend, The New Science of Self-Actualization, which I – recommend you read i think it can help you uh transcend the moment um com. i got the psychology podcast i got my column at scientific american is called beautiful minds and i just try i'm trying to take my instagram level uh game i'm trying to take my instagram game to another level so please follow me on instagram at uh, ampersand uh, Kaufman.
1: Amazing. All in one. And we will, we will put all of those links in the show notes as well in case listeners want to look there. So Scott, again, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for really taking the drinking part of this podcast seriously. (laughs) We do appreciate that.
2: (laughs) Very much appreciate it. Mickey is so so thrilled
1: right now. He just, he always wants guests to get drunk. And (laughs) I think you're the drunkest of any guest is that accurate? oh boy I,
0: I have I take no responsibility for anything I say on Twitter in the next 12 hours how long does it take to, for this to
1: get out of my system maybe Two maybe hours. you just want to put the phone yeah. away and go to sleep right now <laughs> yeah 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 yeah.
0: Woo! <laughs> uh, thanks well, guys it was fun it was fun I really I really have a lot of gratitude for being in amazing yourself, so well
1: we were very happy well, to thank have you. you this was a great time thank you